Well, a few decades ago, there was this movement, kind of in the Christian subculture movement, of bracelets and t-shirts that said WWJD. Anyone have one of those? Wear one of those? See one of those in the last 20 years? Uh, the question is, what would Jesus do? Uh, and I'm not here at all to poke at that question or analyze what would Jesus do, but I got a slightly different question for us tonight as a church. I think we got this up on the screen if we can. Uh, it's, what would Jesus pray? W-W-J-P. What would Jesus pray? Uh, and the good news for us tonight is that we don't have to guess. We don't have to guess at what Jesus might pray because we've been given, actually, uh, written in the Bible, written in the Gospel of John, captured, written for us, this episode where we find Jesus actually praying. Oftentimes when people refer to the Lord's Prayer, uh, they refer to uh, what we often know as our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? Um, And that is true that it is the Lord's Prayer uh, and that the Lord was teaching his disciples to pray. But that episode came on the heels of them, the disciples coming to Jesus and saying, hey, teach us to pray. And so Jesus taught them, pray, when you pray, pray like this, our Father in heaven. And so that is the Lord's Prayer. And yet we have this other section in the book of John, in John 17, which is not just Jesus' model prayer or Jesus' teaching on prayer, but we actually have this snapshot of Jesus actually praying and the words that Jesus used to address his Father in heaven. In some ways, John 17 is this window. And before we read from John 17, and we end our series that we've been in this fall in the uh, upper room discourse of John 13 through 17, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not tonight, you're just trying to check this out and trying to figure out who this God is, regardless, I want you to think about this. What, what would Jesus pray? What does Jesus pray? When the Son of God takes on human flesh and comes among humanity and spends time on earth inviting people to follow him in hopes of believing and placing faith in him, and then that Son, Jesus, has a chance to talk with the Father in heaven, what's on his mind? What's on his heart? I'm convinced that John 17 is massive in its implication for us. Especially when you think about the timing of the prayer. John 17 happens hours before Jesus goes to the cross. In some ways, his last words. In some ways, his last prayer with these disciples in this way before he lays down his life to die for the sins of the world. What does he pray? What's on his mind? What is, what's the thing or the things that he's talking about with the Father? I think it reveals some of the things that matter most. It might be some of the foundation of this great invitation that we have been talking about for a few months now. So if you have a Bible, why don't you open up to John chapter 17. John 17. As Pastor Tim Keller once said, he said, this is the real stuff. This is the Father and the Son within the Godhead having an extended conversation. If you ever wanted to eavesdrop on what the Son would say to the Father in extended conversation, here it is. 
the prayer of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, the priorities of Jesus for his followers. What does Jesus pray? John chapter 17, verse 1. So I'm just going to read this whole thing. If you have a red letter Bible, you'll notice that other than verse 1, it's all in red. All throughout the Gospel of John, John plays color commentator and translator, and he, he kind of interjects, and he explains things, he explains words, he explains customs, he explains Jewish traditions. John 17's all in red. It's as though John understands, I'm just going to get out of the way on this one and let you hear what's on the heart and prayer on the lips of Jesus. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. By the way, Jesus didn't close his eyes when he prayed. He lifted his eyes to heaven. And he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. I think I have a double slide. Yeah, go back one. I'm going to tag the end, verse 19. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but I also, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you love me. 
Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So I, I get that part of the challenge of a, of a passage like that, not only is its length, but also is its repetition. And Jesus does not pray in logical, rational progression. He does not pray point one, sub point A, sub point I, 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 you know. He prays almost in a, in a loop, <laughs> And, and he weaves together a handful of themes and he, he prays into it and then he steps back and then he revisits it and he moves it forward and he prays in cyclical fashion. Um, but I'm going to try and pull out a couple of these things that Jesus, I think, is praying for and that he highlights in his prayer as he circles his way through his conversation with the Father. Here's the first thing. When Jesus prays and he... Again, he comes to the end of this meal. He comes to the end of this time. He's with the disciples. Judas has left. He's washed their feet. They've taken communion. He lifts up his eyes to the Father. The first thing that Jesus prays for is that we would see his glory. Jesus prays about glory. In fact, the word, some version of the word glory shows up five times in the first five verses of John 17. Now, glory has become a churchy word. I don't know how many of you have talked about glory much this last week in casual conversation. Next slide. Glory is a, a word used a lot in the Bible. It's used in the Old Testament a lot. The Old Testament Hebrew word is kavod. Kavod means weight or weightiness, and that which has weight has glory. New Testament word here is the word doxa. It's, it's the essence of a person being made known. It's, uh, as one pastor has said, that God's glory is his holy perfection. <clears throat> Pardon my voice. It's God's holy perfection going public. God is holy in who he is, and his glory is when that is made known, when it is made evident. And Jesus says, Father, I want them to see me in glory. And in many ways, that means two things. Jesus wants you to see him as he really is. And that's what he wants for his disciples. He says this a few times here. Uh, he says it in verse 5. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Again, a reminder, we'll talk about this as we move into the Advent season, but Jesus does not come into existence when he's born in the Bethlehem manger. He has been in eternity past in relationship with the Father. And he's about ready to go back to the Father, having now taken on human flesh, been born as a baby, lived his life, and now he's saying, I'm about ready to go back to you, Father, and I'm going to glorify me in your presence that I may have the glory that I had before I came to earth. 
There's a glory of Jesus that these disciples had not seen. Something had happened in the incarnation. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus emptied himself by taking on humanity. And these people, these disciples around the table could not see Jesus in his full glory. And Jesus is pumped saying, I I can't wait for you all to see me in my glory. He says it again in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is pumped for you to see him as he is. Jesus wants you to be with him, that you would experience the fullness of who he is and you would be in his presence as he is in the Father's presence. But there's a problem The problem that crops up throughout the entire biblical storyline and that problem is sin. And they hadn't been able to see his glory or the Father's glory because of sin and rebellion. And that's why then in verse 1 here, Jesus says, the hour has come. He's like, I deeply desire that you would be with me, with the Father, in my glory. But for that to happen, there's another glory moment that needs to take place. And that glory moment would come soon after John 17. And that's when Jesus goes to the cross. When Jesus is crucified and exalted as the suffering servant fulfilling all the, pro- the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament, all of the human storyline, all of the Israel storyline, fulfilled when Jesus goes to the cross. And in that moment, as he is lifted up on the cross, that's his glory moment. Shedding his blood, his body broken for the sins of the world. And the reason why he deals with sin, the reason why he's willing to go to the cross is because he eagerly desires for you to see him as he is and for you to be with him in his glory. Most of us fail to comprehend what Jesus is really like. And we've come to believe ideas about God from our own stories, from our own families, from our own failings, from our own backgrounds, and from our own brokenness. And Jesus really wants you to see him as he is. He really wants you to experience him in glory. And he really wants you to see him in his glorified place as the exalted, risen, crucified Messiah. We live in a world of lesser glories. We live in a world of distracted glory. I'm guilty of it all the time. I chase shiny, bright objects. Jesus is praying that his followers would see his glory and know his glory and be with him in glory. And it goes through the path of his crucifixion that allows us to experience glory. That's one thing he prays for. Jesus also prays that we would live lives that are holy. So this is where he starts kind of picking things up here after the first five verses. Um, He starts focusing in on specifically these disciples. And he zooms in on their life. He even says, I'm not even going to pray right now for the world. God loves the world. Jesus cares about the world, but in this moment, like Jesus is saying, I'm not even praying about them. I'm praying about this group, my people.
people, the ones who have come to believe in me. He goes, they belong to the Father. The Father has entrusted them to the Son. And Jesus is saying, I've done everything necessary for them. He's given them God's word. He's given them truth. And he's saying, I'm praying for them now. And at the heart of this section of Jesus' prayer, he says, I want them to be holy. I want them to be sanctified. Verse 17 He says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Again, sanctified can be another churchy word. To to be sanctified is to be set apart. It is to be made holy. And Jesus is praying to the Father that these followers sitting in front of him around the table that they would be set apart, that they would be made holy, that they would be different by truth, sent into the world as the Father sent the Son into the world. Now here's where this term holy, I think, needs some clarification. Because when Jesus here talks about the idea of, of holiness or his prayer for his people to be sanctified, I think he talks about holiness in a way that we often don't consider holiness. I've discovered when I talk to a lot of Christians is that there's a direct connection in many people's mind between holiness and separation. And so we hear that Jesus wants us to be holy and we think then that what Jesus wants us to do is to run away from that which would make us unholy. That's not what he's talking about here. We hear, be holy, and we conclude, well, then I must get away from all the nasty, icky people, things. We hear holiness, and in our fear, we fear contamination. You ever experienced Jesus people, Christians, church people, who fear contamination? And so we figure we've got to make our own way, get away, separate. That's not Jesus's prayer here. Again, listen to this. Can we go back a slide? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. You can go back to the slide you had up there. The holiness that Jesus prays here in John 17 is not a holiness that is away from the world, but it's a holiness that sends us back into the world. It's not a holiness of separation, but a holiness of integration. Who do we take our cues from? It's Jesus. Jesus, I I think most would agree, is the Holy One without sin. How did Jesus engage the world? Not by running away. Jesus doesn't say, follow me, I will wash you of your sins so that you can run far away from that which is broken in the world. It's his truth that sanctifies us. It's his word that sets us apart to make us more fully integrated as human beings, restored as image bearers, to then go and walk in the way of Jesus to the world. We watch Jesus as he plays out his holiness. Jesus hung out with the poor. 
Jesus had no problem at the house parties with the tax collectors and the sinners. Jesus hung out with lepers and women who had sexual brokenness or poor reputations. And those that freaked out the most were the religious leaders over the washings. And Jesus kept bringing it back around to say, what makes you clean or holy is not what you put in, but what comes out from inside of you. Nothing says it better than verse 15 when he says, I do not ask, he's praying to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. There will be a day when he comes back again to deal with this world. Until then, his prayer is not for us to be taken out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus prays that we as his people would be able to see his glory. He also prays that we would be set apart and holy to engage the world that he's put us in. One last thing. Praise for glory. He prays that we would live lives that are holy. And he prays that we would grasp the high calling of unity. Unity. Every time I read verse 20, I always, it, just, it stops me, right? Verse 20, I do not ask for these only. So again, he, he says, he clarifies, I'm not just praying for the world, I'm praying for these my disciples, my followers. And then verse 20, he's like, and I'm not praying right now, Father, just for these around the table, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. On this night in the upper room, Jesus is praying for us. Jesus has prayed for us. Anyone who would believe in him through the word of the apostles. Jesus was able to look down the corridor of time. He's praying for his church. He's praying for this community, this group of disciples. He's praying for us. And he prays that in our lives, we would have a unity that is based and built on the community of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. He prays for unity among believers that would mirror the unity that exists between Father, Son, and Spirit. Like we're invited in. We're invited into the divine dance of Father, Son, and Spirit, which is it's hard to describe Trinity. It's hard to describe Father, Son, and Spirit. I get it. But there's something beautiful here that Jesus is praying for and he longs for and he calls us to. But again, this kind of unity is not worldly unity. It is not a unity that seeks to keep people out. But it is a unity that lets people in because that's what Father, Son, and Spirit have been doing. It's this invitation in. Verse 23, he says, so that the world would know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus says that our unity communicates the love of God to the world. 
that the world would look upon the church. Like, oh, it makes sense who Jesus is. And yet, for near 2,000 years, we have this instinct to divide and separate and divide and separate and divide and separate. I just want to go through some of these words that Jesus shares because again, as we talk about unity or holiness or glory, it's not like it's this checklist thing. There's something sweeter and deeper underneath this. As, as Jesus is praying to the Father and praying for his disciples and praying for those that would come, I think in many ways, I'll put this next slide up, that Jesus is praying for us to be swept into the eternal community of love. we could make unity the goal and again figure out strategies for unity or we could make even holiness the goal or some idea of seeing Jesus's glory but I think the more I read Jesus's words and hear him pray here's what's underneath it it's not just make well it's good people get along so let's have unity He's praying that we would be swept into the eternal community of love. And and I think in John 17, Jesus reaches the limits of language. Like he's trying to describe this thing, and it's like, I can't even describe fully what this is. But let, let me trace this out a bit here. This is even going back to John 6. He says, the one who believes in me has eternal life. I'm the bread of life that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats from this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Next slide. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me and I dwell in him. So there's this language of of you in me and I in you as you participate in my flesh and my blood. Next slide. John 14, then, back in this conversation in the upper room, he says, the Father will give you another advocate that that he, the Spirit, might be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. And he will dwell in you, and he will be in you. And that day you will know that, that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Next slide. He calls us to abide in him. He says, you abide in me and I will abide in you, right? Like a branch and a vine. You're not able to unless you you dwell in me because the one who dwells in me and I in him, this is the one who will bear much fruit. If if you dwell in me and, and my words dwell in you, just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you, so you dwell in my love, and if you keep my commandments, then you will, will dwell in my love. And then we're into John 17. I'm praying that those who believe in me through the apostles' words, that, that they may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they may be in us. 
The glory you've given me, I've given to them so that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one. And he wants, he wants us to know this, that the love that the Father has for the Son might be in them, just as he is in them. I had a pen and drew all the connection points. You, like, again, he, he's reaching the, the, the limits of language to describe this I and you and you and me and me and him, them. And, and, and is this, the circle of the divine community is being opened up and we are being welcomed in. Jesus prays for us to be swept into the eternal community of love because the Trinity, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit is welcoming in new members into the community. And any conversation around unity must get this clear that this is actually the most important thing. Through the finished work of Jesus on the cross, this is what we're being invited into. The Spirit in us that we may be in the Son as the Son is in the Father. And as the Father loves the Son perfectly, now the love has been given to us and the Spirit's been given to us that we may participate in this. This is the most important thing about you. Not your age. Not your gender. Not where you work. Not your economic status. Not your political party. Not your nationality. I love being an American. This comes first. All the ways that we divide and fight, we find creative ways to divide and fight. Jesus is praying for a people to be swept into this. You have an opportunity to be loved as the Father loves the Son with the Spirit in you, pouring out the Father's love into your hearts. Romans 5. Loved perfectly as Jesus is loved perfectly. And yes, right now we're in this in-between, but one day, face-to-face, new heavens, new earth, to see Jesus in his glory as he is. All tears wiped away. All sin forever dealt with. All death destroyed. This world put to right. And Jesus says, I'm praying for my people. I'm praying for my followers. I'm praying for anyone else who would hear the word through these, including us, that they would be so swept into this that they would then be captivated to tell the story to others that you know what, the invitation still stands. The love of God is being offered to you fully in Jesus. The presence of the Spirit given to your life through the work of Jesus, through faith in Him. That you can be loved unconditionally. You can be given an identity above all identities. You can be given a purpose above all purposes. that we would be so swept into that that the other stuff we can let go. And it doesn't mean those other things are unimportant. 
that we've made them so important that it divides. Jesus prays for us to see His glory, to live lives that are holy, and to be a community in unity. That's how He spends His last prayer time to the Father. So before we sing tonight, I want to do a little processing with us. This first part, we'll go to the next slide. This one's just out loud. We'll do this together. What are the things that we have let stand in the way of our unity? What do you think? And that can be reality specific, or that can be the American church specific, or just Christians in general. But what do you think? What have we let stand in the way of our unity? Doctrine, hurt feelings, okay, fear of what others might think, traditions, what else, politics, pride, our own pride. Say an unwillingness to be brutally honest or trying to be brutally honest? To be brutally honest with each other. Fear, yeah. Being passive, yeah. What's that? Racism. What else? COVID? What's that? That hasn't been a problem at all. Yeah, not, so not having the mind of Christ. Yeah, what else? Things we've st- let stand in the way. Our identity issues. Can you tell me what you mean by that? So the, letting those other markers mark us as our identity more than other than in Jesus. Yeah. Unwillingness, stubbornness, maybe. Assumptions. Yeah. So here's what I want to do tonight. Uh, some things we want to continue to to do, maybe a bit more of, is is praying together. Um, and so, if we can put this next slide up. Again, we're not going to spend hours on this. I just want to spend the next like five minutes. I want you to turn around to some people around you, two, three, four people. And I know some people are still sensitive because of, of COVID and distances, so don't get up in someone's face. And no one has to pray. No one's forced to pray. But as Jesus prayed for us in this way, would we be able to join Jesus in praying for this for us? Just spend, we're going to spend five minutes, and we're going to pray for unity in our church. We could spend some moments praying for other churches in our county and for the church in our country and world with some of the things that we just named maybe as barriers in mind. So it's, it's 5.05. At 5.10, I'll bring us back. We're going to get a chance to take communion together and sing. Will you just turn to someone next to you, maybe groups of two, three, four,